I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through Nova Conversations. Hello again, friends. Welcome to a very special holiday episode of Nova Conversations. This is a bonus episode, and I'm going to go into some pay-to-play dynamics that I think are really important to parse out, and I just want to make it really clear for people who are new to the conservation field, for people who have been in conservation for years and years and uh, just don't understand the nuances and the differences. And then later on in the episode, we're going to, I'm going to share an interview that I had with Brittany Sari, and she is a conservation trauma specialist now. She's getting her master's in counseling, but she has a conservation science background, and we go into all of that. I love getting to know Brittany. She has such a kind soul and just a sweet spirit and really, really cares for people who have been impacted by conservation traumas that you know, I probably have been impacted more than I would care to admit. So it was a great conversation. Stay tuned for that. And um, we talk about ways to protect your goose, which I know you don't know what that means yet, but you'll hear about it later. If you are interested in helping contribute to her research and her work, please go to conservationtrauma.com. You only have like a month left to go and contribute to this data, this really important research that she's working on. And we'll hear from her in a little bit. But first, let's talk about pay to play, this broad generalized term that no one really has a clear definition for or what it means. Essentially what people mean when they say pay to play is that you're paying for some type of experience and in this realm, in this field, we're talking about conservation, specifically wildlife experiences that are unique. That's something you can't get wherever your home region is. So it's usually a tropical location or Antarctica or something with some charismatic species that's cool and exciting and different. But within this term, pay to play, there are all sorts of different nuances and levels. The first level is paying to work which is never okay, where you pay to work a job, not acceptable ever. So this is when you are paying a fee and you probably don't realize it, but you end up doing a job. Some red flags for paying to work might be lack of autonomy. Um, There's a lack of flexibility from your overseers or quote unquote boss. There's a task or tasks that must be done that you cannot avoid. You have a set schedule and you can't deviate from that schedule. And there's pressure, um, whether external or internal pressure from others to perform your duties and your roles, even though you are paying for this experience. And an example would be in episode one, no, episode two, where Emily Davis traveled to Ecuador and she ended up paying thousands of dollars to work for this organization that she traveled with. She did not have the autonomy to do as she wanted. She did not get a clearly communicated expectation of what her money was going towards, how it was helping conservation, how it was broadening her skills and and helping her. It's very unclear what she paid for. She paid to do a job. She paid to work. Unacceptable. So I looked up the word, just the term job in the dictionary And it has a few definitions. So one is a specific task for one's occupation in which an agreed fee is determined beforehand. (laughs) In the dictionary, it's clearly meant to be the employer is paying the person to do the work, not the other way around. The other definition is a specific duty, role, or function, and something that has to be done. So these are jobs. These must be done. They're specific. They're tasks. They probably have a definitive timeline, a de- definitive time in the day that they must be done, a set schedule, a set time frame, as in like a few weeks to a few months. If it feels like a job, it is a job, and you should never, ever, ever be paying for a job. 
But then the next level down is just this general kind of paying to volunteer term. And there's different reasons and motivations behind why people would pay to volunteer. So let's look a little bit more carefully at each of those. So when someone pays to volunteer, it can mean that they want to get experience. They want to pad their resume. They want to work in wildlife and therefore are going to pay for, say, bird banding training or um, snorkeling, diving, scuba diving, coral reef restoration, mammal tracking, collaring, camera traps, something like that. They're going to pay to get this experience. The organization, the conservation organization that is charging this fee is usually spending a lot of their time, energy, money, staff, and effort to train people and allow them to come on board and experience the unique ecosystem, species, and hands-on skills that they are offering to train people in. So to ask for a fee for that type of experience is entirely reasonable, as long as the fee is not over and above an an exorbitant amount of money. And historically, this is just the way a lot of conservation nonprofits operate. They will charge people to come out and get this experience, and then it benefits both the nonprofit because they get people and money, and then it benefits the individual who's paying to volunteer and get this experience because they get something to add to a resume. However, this is now becoming more and more of a problem as we're seeing how people who have money, people who are privileged, are getting preferential hiring. They're getting that treatment where they can pay to just boost their resume and then they get the jobs over other people who do not have the means to be able to do things like this, to pay for the training, to pay for the experience. And then in addition, as you're probably aware, conservation work is generally a privileged white person's career because of this problem. So it leads to huge diversity issues and income stream differences and inequalities and marginalized groups are so very horribly cut out from conservation work and we need to hear their voices. And that's the problem that a lot of conservationists are really starting to be concerned about, myself included. So how do we fix this? That's a big question and that's what I'll talk about in a little bit. Okay, so within pay to play, we have this pay to work level, which is abuse and manipulation. Once you are able to recognize it because of those unclear expectations going in, But then there's the pay to volunteer, which has different levels. You can pay to pad a resume, or I want to also talk about the term paying to intern. Now, um, I just found out recently that there are certain countries in the world that require internships, unpaid internships for certain degrees to be fulfilled. So these countries and these universities require that people work internships that are unpaid. So I also recognize that the term internship is loaded and I do not want to be an advocate for unpaid internships, especially in the context that an internship is just code word for job. That's the same exact thing as paying to work. That can happen, but it's not always the case. It's also a really unclear term (laughs) that probably needs some better definition. But I say all that because there are opportunities to pay for an internship, and the term internship or intern is still used because those universities require their students to have internships. And if a student is required to have an internship, they might as well go to someplace cool and pay for it if they can afford it. Is internship the best term? No, but this is the way of the world. Um, I'm sure there's other... You know, it's, it's interesting. Like, I'm sure there's other sectors that are working on this. this. This is not unique to conservation and wildlife work. People who go into acting and art and creative writing and other hard-to-break-into industries suffer some of these injustices and exploitative practices. So I am interested in researching how other groups have figured these things out because this is not unique, but it is especially challenging due to the geographical location that many of these animals and ecosystems are in. 
So if I could give one piece of advice for those nonprofit organizations or research institutions that are trying to recruit interns, quote unquote, or volunteers to pay for the experiences that they offer since they are such a unique opportunity, it would just be to be careful about how you are advertising it and make your expectations clear, make it really transparent. And I think a lot of organizations are starting to do this now. You see it on the forums. Um, so to the organizations, be careful how you advertise, but also to the people who comment, know and understand that nonprofits don't make any money either. Like we're struggling and we're all in this together. So it's really easy to jump in and attack a nonprofit for posting an opportunity that requires some payment or some fee, yet this has worked for them for years. Years. This is the model that they've been used to. Um, not that that's always right. I'm just, I'm trying to like balance both sides of the equation here because it is such a sensitive topic. Um, I think the point is I just don't want people to take their anger out on the conservation organizations that are doing really good work. There's a lot that are exploitative. There are a lot that are not doing um, this for the good of animals. And as a whole, conservation organizations are getting lumped together as in all of you are bad and they're not all bad. And again, that's where the review site was trying to come in and help out with that, but can't do it all. Can't do it all. So that would be my advice as you're navigating the forums. If you're an organization, be honest and upfront about how you post the opportunities, why you are asking for a fee, what, what type of training or learning experience you give or provide. And then if you are on there for a job, understanding that not all of the fee-based posts are paid to work. There's a lot more delicacies and differences that need to be parsed out. Okay, and the last level of paying to play is something I am calling pay to give, which is where you just pay to give back to conservation. And this is what Nova Conservation Travel is trying to do. We are trying to intentionally target and market to people who have the income to be able to pay for conservation experiences that don't want to add it to a resume so that the burden isn't falling on the early career conservationists anymore and hurting conservation as a whole because we're the ones who have to pay for these experiences. No, we're trying to look at other people who want to do cool biological work. I mean, think about it. every time I talk to someone and say what I do for work and how I'm studying birds and traveling the world, they're like, that sounds amazing. I'm trying to figure out a way to get those people interested in conservation, interested in biological work, and able to go on those trips with us. A little bit grittier, a little bit more give back, a little bit more biological conservation focus, science focused, but it is going to benefit us all overall if the burden stops falling on those of us who can't afford it. Because there is such a high rate of exploitation, these organizations, some of them, the bigger ones that are, you know, unethical, might say, hey, we're going to charge you X amount of money for this conservation adventure, but make it really vague and unclear about what you're going to be doing. So then when you get to whatever country you travel to and pay this fee for, it's absurd and unclear and vague and you don't feel like you have helped conservation at all. Nova Conservation wants to be different. We want to do ecotourism right. This is ecotourism done the way it's intended to be done. So think about the alternative. People pay all the time for trips to tropical coral reefs to go and dive, but then they just look at fish, they look at sea turtles, eels, and don't do anything that contributes back to that ecosystem. They just go as a tourist and experience it, but don't actively participate or be engaged in the process of restoring the work in the coral reef. So true ethical ecotourism is meant to restore and unify and bring those projects full circle by bringing people out there, charging this fee, and then allowing them to experience the up-close, tangible connection with nature 
that is so intrinsic and so important for all of us to help the future of our planet, not just to see it and wave goodbye and (laughs) adios to the coral reefs that are dying. These trips will actually help the planet. These trips will help conservation efforts by putting money and funds into the directly into the science that is supporting conservation research and education. In this case, you're not paying to work for them. You're not doing a job, but you are paying for unique experience to work in tandem with biologists, glean from their expertise, and have a cool vacation, a true ethical eco-tourism opportunity to give back and contribute to benefit the planet in an area or a part of the world that you don't live in. So it's a really unique experience and a way to give back instead of just be exploited. Conservationists should no longer be paying to support nonprofit conservation. (laughs) It's a vicious cycle and we're trying to change that. And as you'll hear in in the interview with Brittany, that this is causing severe trauma and problems within our sector. So here is my interview with Brittany Sari. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this special episode of Nova Conversations. I'm Laura, and I'm here with Brittany Sare. I meant to ask you, how do you pronounce your name? Um, it's really close. It's sorry, like you're apologizing, um, but sorry sounds better. Let's go with it. <laughs> it sounds French. Yes, what? much more. Francois? Sare. <laughs> no, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, just like you're apologizing. Okay. Okay. I can go with that. That's easy. Um, Brittany is here because she is studying. She's getting her PhD from London. Oh, did I mess something up already? Too? I'm actually getting my master's in counseling from Arizona uh, State University. Yeah. See, we did this like pre thing so I could know <laughs> what's happening and I'm still going to mess it up. Oh, we, we keep going. We just keep yep. going. Yeah, we uh, <laughs> So you're getting your master's in counseling counseling not therapy mm-hmm. yeah. from Arizona State so what's the connection with the Imperial College so my first master's was in conservation science at Imperial College London and that was the 2014 to 2015 cohort and okay. then now I went back at uh, fall of 2020 for my master's in counseling okay okay so because she has this conservationtrauma.com which is what I wanted to talk about with Brittany mm-hmm. And um, there's a survey. Can you tell us a little bit about the survey, about what you're doing, maybe about your background too, how you got interested in that? Absolutely. Well, first of all, the survey is looking at um, vicarious trauma, specifically in conservationists. So vicarious trauma, you know, we have trauma when something specifically happens to us, um, but then we also can experience vicarious trauma when we see other things or other people um, go through trauma themselves. And so you see this talked about a lot with therapists or with um, social workers, even with some lawyers that deal um, with uh, traumatizing cases or emergency responders. Um, They see other people in trauma or hear their stories of trauma and actually start to develop symptomology around that as well. And so uh, my theory, and so far it's looking like it's unfortunately true, is that because conservationists are working with nature, with habitats, with species that are undergoing traumatic loss, um, sometimes traumatic deforestation, traumatic. The the stories that I've collected so far are terrible and so important, Um, but watching that happen is bound to have an effect. And so I am looking at, I believe for the first time, I haven't been able to find any other studies that have looked at this. Um, What are the levels of vicarious trauma that conservationists are experiencing? Um, And then we're also looking at symptoms of psychological distress and at social support um, to try to see, all right, is is vicarious trauma being experienced? Is that correlated with psychological distress, symptoms of anxiety and depression? Um, But does social support make a difference? Um, Does that help us not develop as much symptomology after experiencing these traumatic events or watching these traumatic events happen? So um, yes, if you go to conservationtrauma.com, 
it's just like a five to seven minute survey, depending on if you want to write down some of your stories or not. Um, and I just want to include as many voices as possible because again, already the responses I've gotten to read through are so important. And it's so important that we include as many experiences as possible um, to really make this voice loud, to say like, this this is a serious problem. This is something that's happening in the field to so many people by far more than more than 75% so far are undergoing at least moderate to severe vicarious trauma. So please, wow. please, please go to conservationtrauma.com and take that quick survey. Um, I am going to close it at the end of January, 2022. So um, so that we can get that analyzed and hopefully get it out to the public as soon as possible. So please go visit. Uh, so you, what was that statistic you just gave? 75% of your current respondents so far on average are um, suffering from the moderate to moderate severe. to severe vicarious trauma. Oh my gosh. There's a, a, a very small, I think it's actually smaller than that. I'd need to go look and see what the responses are as of today, but a tiny fraction were in the low to um, none category. The vast majority are at least in moderate. Um, and last I looked, it was actually exactly 50% were in high or extreme vicarious trauma. Oh my gosh. Half of us yeah. are suffering from vicarious trauma in a very yeah. significant way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I took the survey. I, I went to conservationtrauma.com and it only took a few minutes. It was really brief and re- very simple. You had it set it up, set up really nicely and easily to um, just get through quickly. So I, first of all, I want to say thank you for doing this work because this Mm -hmm. is very underutilized work. And like you said, there's no current study on any of this so far that we know of. Uh, So I am very grateful that people are looking at this work and looking at Mm -hmm. the effects that conservation workers are experiencing through Mm -hmm. the degradation of our ecosystems. I mean, I've felt that so much lately. So I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not alone. And actually that's how I heard about you is through the lonely conservationist. So um, Mm -hmm. how did you get plugged in with them? Tell me a little bit about your backstory too. You started as a zookeeper. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. Remind me to go back to lonely conservationists. They've been incredible as part of the study. So I want to make sure they get a shout out for it. Um, so yeah, my, my background, I got a, uh, an undergraduate degree in biology, was a zookeeper for several years, um, did some work in Namibia um, with the Cheetah Conservation Fund, did a summer at an elephant conservation um, sanctuary uh, in Arkansas, uh, uh, in the U.S. of all things. Very strange. Um, there a conser- and elephant conservation sanctuary in Arkansas. There's one in Tennessee, which is funny. There is. Yes, um, there's, it's a private um, sanctuary. They're only open one day a week. Um, and it really is someone that used to work with elephants um, that then wanted to um, take care of the ones that especially were coming out of the circus. Um, I actually am not entirely sure um, if that um, sanctuary is still uh, going or not. This was about 10 years ago. So I'd have to look and make sure I still want to give them a shout out or not. But um and so I then went and got my master's in conservation science, um, partially because I just wanted to be uh, feeling a little bit more proactive about my conservation work um, and and found that just some of the the really necessary parts of zookeeping were not something that was going to keep me really um, engaged long term. Um, I just wanted to be doing more problem solving, um, just yeah, more active engagement. So I got my master's from Imperial College London. Um, in conservation science um, in 2014, 2015. And that was a great experience. Um, and some of the things that I wish I had been paying attention to then, um, I've always been so focused on science and on conservation that I, I looking back, missed some clues about well, where I was uniquely suited. That's, that's so interesting you say that because that's what we were told as to be good scientists, we need to look at the data and we need to be logical. And that's how we were raised to be good scientists. Mm-hmm. And so you think, okay, I just have to put my logic hat on and like distance myself from all of these emotions that I'm feeling and all of these emotions that I'm hearing from other people. Like there's no room in that for science to be mm-hmm. a good scientist that, that can't be looked at. And now we're seeing this blending of um, sociology and psychology in with conservation science and how it affects people. So I think that's very mm-hmm. interesting that you said that. 
I felt yeah, that. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and some of the things that I, I wish I had just paid more attention to, but you know, we all have our own path and it, it, the timing is what the timing needs to be. So um, I wish I had noticed that what really drew me in was actually conversations with my colleagues. Mm-hmm. I was so fascinated by the way they saw the world, the way they saw conservation, um, and especially this this weight, this existential dread that they carried about conservation and about um, the work that we would hopefully be doing and the problems that we had, um, and found myself really drawn into those conversations of of comforting my colleagues, of ask, trying to ask good questions about just what what these emotions were that they were carrying. Um, but again, didn't really give that any credence. Um, that's how I've been since I was really little. I like to ask questions. I like to connect with people emotionally. I like to comfort. I like to encourage. But that was never, never even occurred to me that that could be part of a job. Um, and so after graduation, I did some consulting work with the Whitley Fund for Nature um, with EJ Milner Gulland, who is my absolute hero. Um, and then, and, and worked in a, a nonprofit that wasn't in conservation. Um, here in the States uh, for several years. And then through a series of events, that organization was moving. So my job was either move or, or be done. And I chose that I wasn't going to move. Um, and so I got this really, I would say, wonderful, magical time of about three months where I knew my job would be ending. And I got to ask, okay, what am I doing? Um, now is the time that I should go back and get my PhD in conservation. That seems right. That's what the timing says. That's what my previous supervisor had kind of said. And yet I something didn't feel right about it. I, I just, there was nothing that was like, yes, that is the question I have to know the answer to. Um, and as I started, I started making lists of like, what do I love? What do I hate? What gives me energy? What drains my energy? Um, and just really slowly came to know that therapy was really what I wanted to do for the next 40 years. Um, sit with people one-on-one and help them reach their full potential, help them unlock um, and be able to to walk in confidence and empowerment. And absolutely hand in hand with that, was listening to stories of previous colleagues, of previous classmates who are really struggling with anxiety and with depression and with the weight, not just the existential weight, but also the weight of, I thought I wanted to have kids, but now I don't think I can because I can't make enough in conservation or I'm on my sixth, six month contract. And I can't get a job that sticks because it's always dependent on funding. And and just these conversations where my love of psychology and my love of helping combines then with my fascination with conservation, my love of these colleagues and classmates um, just really began to birth that vision of what don't we know, which is so much. We don't know so much about the psychology of what we as conservationists are going through. Right. Um, not just eco-anxiety, not just climate anxiety, but our specific field. I mean, people study doctors and they study lawyers and they study first responders and they study therapists and all these people that are in trauma-related fields. And no one has looked at our trauma response. Of wow. We're watching our beloved species or habitat or whatever it is that we have given our lives for, watching it be destroyed, that is significant. Um, and so I was really fortunate to find a professor at Arizona State University, um, Ashley Randall, that she she works in um, more couples and uh, relationship research. Um, and she is just passionate about helping me do my research um, on on my own. And then I'm partnering uh, with some people from Oxford, uh, Tom Pinkowski, who's been amazing, um, and EJ, and um, just trying to get the survey out to as many people as possible. Um, because I, it's my two passions coming together of getting to help people and encourage them and, and not save because we don't save people as therapists, but help the people that are saving the world yes. keep doing that, keep on their feet. So that is some of, of my back. Oh, and then I wanted to shout out Lonely Conservationist because um, Jessie's just been amazing. Um, I connected with her probably a year ago when I started my program because I said, I want to study this. I got to get through some of my classes first and breathe. But what are you seeing? What would you want to be studied? Um, and so we just chatted some then, kept in contact. And then when I was ready to launch the survey, I asked her to be one of the piloters. 
um, and got some of her feedback and then she sent it out and it, that has been such a huge help. Um, I would say that that, I mean, that was like at least 150, maybe 200 responses in 48 hours because of lonely conservationists. So, um, such a huge fan of their work. So in line with their mission and I mean, why it came to be. So it's not just the trauma from like our habitat is degrading and we're losing species, but compounded upon that is I feel so alone and I feel like no one understands what I'm going through and how can I hold down a job and how can I have a family and how can I make money? I'm so sorry. One moment. Hey, Google, stop. (laughs) Stop. We can always edit it out or we can leave it because it's just human. <laughs> My partner has like Google things around the house and clearly just turned on music somewhere else in the house. And <laughs> so turned on that one. music behind me. Yeah, great. Well, right. earlier as you were talking, my kid's like running in, doors are slamming, he's yelling and I'm like trying I to hear not. it. So that makes sense. Oh, you didn't? Okay, good. No. <laughs> so lonely conservationist is amazing. And then you were saying that it goes so in line with their their focus of like trying to help people, um, not just with the trauma of seeing habitat destruction, but also uh, trying to hold down a job. And, yes. Yeah. And just survive and get paid health insurance so that they can go to therapy for this stuff. I mean, exactly. I, thought, I thought I understood what trauma we go through as conservationists, because I am one and I've interacted with one for years. And I read her book and I was like, oh, that was a really good point that I never thought of. Or just this idea that the old, like the old, um, realm of conservationists it's like well that's just what we had to do and so now the younger generation is coming up and saying well we want to do better like let's change mm-hmm. this instead of that's just how it's always been that's not that's just how it is. because yeah. that's that's like saying oh back in the times of you know where there was total oppression of like well that's just how it was and that's just right. what we're going to do like so we're it's just going to be that way going forward <laughs> we're never going to get better as a society if we don't address all these systemic oppressions and mm-hmm. things that are going on. So I'm yeah. I'm thrilled to hear that you're doing this work because I know Jesse was going to go, she was planning on going like a year ago to go back to school to help nonprofits figure out how to protect their conservationists and make mm-hmm. sure that they're cared for. She is no longer doing that program. And now she's working as a kindergarten teacher in Australia, teaching outdoor mm-hmm. kinder, kindergarten, oh, which wow. is awesome and supports her passion and things like that. Um, but it's also like, well, we have to make money. I mean, you can't do lonely conservation as full time because there's not really money there. Right. Yeah. And that's the, the constituents that care and get so much from it. But don't. That's part of the problem is they don't have disposable income to also help. So yes. yeah, it's such a challenge. And it like you had said about being able to get help for these people that are really struggling, but they are struggling to pay their bills, let alone then get therapy or things like that. And that's what I'm I'm hoping that with now several of us, I mean, Jesse has done amazing work. Um, I'm starting out on this. I've already connected with several people that are like, hey, I want to do what you're doing, but I don't know how or I'm trying to, um, I've talked to a couple of women in the UK that are trying to get PhDs funded um, to specifically look at this stuff. And so there's, there are people coming up to work on this together. And I think as we put data to this, um, my big hope, especially after working with uh, Whitley Fund, who I also just adore, um, and seeing how, how we need to get to donors, <laughs> Um, if, if we can show donors, Hey, this is what's happening to the people. I know you really want to give money specifically only for vehicles or only for bird boxes or only for this. I understand that, but these people need more support. They need more help so that they can keep doing this. And that is the best investment of your funds. Um, and hoping that we can change some of the expectations there as we get more of this data out. Um, hopefully we can get donors to to realize that it is the people the people doing the work um that are our first priority i always think of i don't know if you've heard of the fable of the goose and the golden egg oh tell me what that is oh my gosh i share it all the time because it just it comes it's poignant in my life often um but it's an aesop's fable and it is about like a, a farmer has a goose and it, it lays a golden egg he's so excited he sells the egg and every day the goose lays a golden egg and he gets more and more rich and he starts to get really greedy and impatient. 
And so in frustration that he has to wait for only one egg every day, he decides to cut the goose open and get all the eggs out. But of course, there's no eggs inside the goose. And so now he has killed his goose and can't get any more golden eggs out of his greed. And so, so often we treat ourselves that way. I tell people all the time, protect your goose because it's you. You're not going to do any more conservation if you burn out. You're not going to get any bit more of work if you push yourself to the level that you collapse. So you have to take care of yourself first if you want to keep doing this important work. And also organizations, take care of your geese. Mm -hmm. If you burn these people out, if you don't give them enough to pay their bills or to have some semblance of stability, then you are going to keep killing your geese and you won't get more work out of them. And so um, a really simple fable, but I feel like it it just fits, unfortunately, too many sectors and experiences. That is great. That is really great. I'm glad you shared that. I mean, and it's it's so true. Like if only nonprofits could do this, if only the research institutions could pay their employees what they're worth. And then the problem is too with the nonprofits and research institutions is they don't have money either. And right. it just always goes back to, I, I gave a TED talk recently um, on this and it, the fact that we don't have money in conservation yeah. because it's only, it's always reliant on grants or funds, fundraising, mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah. And grants, well, they don't want to pay for things that, the conservation's at the bottom of the list when it comes to like cybersecurity and everything else, all the other problems in the world, mm-hmm. COVID, homelessness, conservation's mm-hmm. down here. And even then, you're right. They only want to fund the stuff or right. the in, most imperiled species so few of it goes to people and overhead and paying for that work to be done. And that's a problem. And fundraising takes so much time and effort. So I again burns people out because most people didn't get into conservation because they liked fundraising. Exactly. It's not their wheelhouse. And that's a good reason. That's that's okay that it's not their wheelhouse. They shouldn't have to be able to do everything, but that's where we're at right now. So yeah. so many systemic problems. I'm really, really glad to hear that people like you and others are starting to study this to get raw data, to um, analyze that, and to hopefully improve the sector so that we can move forward mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. that's protecting our goose. <laughs> mm-hmm. that is, yes, that is an awesome fable. I love that, uh, and I want to. I will help in any way I, I can and get the word out. But this interview ha- is recorded at the end of. Uh, December 2021. So you guys only have one month left to get um, those surveys turned in. So Brittany can do her awesome work. And tell me that website again. It's conservationtrauma.com. So no, I can't spell it out loud, but it's just, you all know how to spell <laughs> conservation, conservationtrauma.com. I thought maybe I could do it. I don't, spelling out loud is really not one of my talents, but um, and thank you so much for the work that you do. And even, I know this podcast is still, you're still getting it. launched more you just it was just in July right that you launched this yeah um but so appreciate the work that you're doing here with Nova Conversations but then also your work with Nova Conservation um just I you're another one of the warriors trying to protect our geese um and so I really appreciate your work thank you Brittany it was so nice to connect with you and maybe when life has settled down a bit haha We'll have we'll have you back on for a full-length conversation to really dive into your story and your heart behind uh doing this work. And I like I said, I'm just really glad that there will be therapists coming up in the near future who are trained specifically to deal with conservation trauma. That is mm-hmm. that is very exciting for me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Laura. Um, and I hope that you have a lovely end of the year. And anyone listening, please go take that survey, but also reach out if you need to talk. I'm not, I can't be your therapist, but um, I can definitely hear your stories um, and just appreciate everyone that has taken the survey. The stories that you've shared are so impactful. Um, and I, I really am like, I, I have the data and that's great um, for the quantitative side, but also the qualitative, like the stories that you've shared are deeply, deeply impactful and important. And we are going to find a way to share your stories. So please keep sharing them Um, and just appreciate you all and appreciate Laura so much. Let your voice be heard. Awesome. Thanks, Brittany. Thanks, Laura. Bye. Bye. Okay, guys. So that was an incredible interview with Brittany. I'm so glad we connected. 
The last thing I wanted to do for this special podcast episode was just do a brief, hopefully brief, re um, recap of the year 2021. And it started off amazing. I had a Kickstarter going. We launched that February 1st. We did a really cool launch party and all these Zoom callers came in and interviewed. And you can still watch that on our YouTube, YouTube channel if you're interested. And the Kickstarter went on for 60 days and I learned so much about... Uh, marketing and how to grow an audience and how to get people interested in a cause. It was really a good learning experience for me. And again, the Kickstarter was for our database, our website database, and it was not successful. I set the bar too high, didn't meet it, and that's fine. It just was very, um, a lot of work goes into creating a database. And, it, and even when you think you have a good story or you think you have a good product, if no one knows about it, it's not going to get funded or it's not going to be bought or purchased because you don't, it just doesn't happen like that. You have to tell people about it. And that involves marketing and strategies and social media and all sorts of ways of getting the word out there. So long story short, I ended the Kickstarter, the Kickstarter ended on April 2nd or something like that. And it was unsuccessful, but I learned a lot and I connected with a lot of people about how to talk to conservationists. And we then had an open panel um, that was on April 6, 2021. And I'm not going to go into it too much. As of right now, the panel is still on YouTube. I considered taking it down many, many times. And I might still take it down. There's still a lot of good content that people can glean from it. But um, it was problematic in a few different reasons, and most of those were my fault. I did not moderate well. I didn't let enough people talk and participate. I didn't create a safe space for people to feel comfortable talking, and I regret that, and I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, But that's how you learn, and I'm growing, and I'm learning, and that's why I started this podcast. Honestly, I tried to create a place where people felt open and comfortable and could talk about these things. And it was an open live panel that was recorded. And of course, people didn't feel comfortable talking about that. Like, I misjudged the entire situation. And some people felt comfortable talking about it and talked a lot. And that's just goes to show like where we have kind of this dynamic of what people are willing to speak up about and what people aren't. Um, I ended up through the panel pissing a lot of people off. And I hope that I have done my due diligence in making things right. And if not, please reach out to me because I um, am only one person and I would like to uh, rectify whatever wrongs occurred. And I don't know if there's any loose ends untied yet. I think I have done my part. And this is really, really vague. And I'm sorry if you're listening to this and you're like, I have no clue what's going on (laughs) because it just was really, it was hard for me. It was a really hard couple of months. Every time I tried to correct the issues that we had, something else went wrong and I hurt someone else. And so it was just like juggling all these things. And I learned a lot about myself and what I stand for and who I am as a person. Like I know in my heart that I am a good person and I can do these things. But I also know that we unintentionally, due to systemic issues that exist in our culture, we do create ways that are hurtful and problematic to people. Yet we don't know those things unless people just gently call us in. And I say call us in instead of call out because call out is where it's public, where someone's like, this person did something wrong and I have a problem with that. Um, Calling in is where someone says, hey, I'm going to pull you aside in a private area, in a private space and say, this hurt me and here's why it's a problem. Will you please consider changing? And that happened to me um, where people emailed me privately and I really appreciate that. I I was able to change and we all can change and learn and grow. And so that's the type of person I want to attract is someone who's willing to forgive and love yourself, love yourselves, love others, and just move on. Um, 
and do the best we can. We are all doing the best we can with the resources that are given to us. And even now, as I'm like kind of reflecting on the year and I'm thinking about it and I'm doing some research for other projects and I was interviewing someone who's a very strong advocate for racial justice and um, dismantling white supremacy. And I am full on board for that. I uh, can't wait to talk to this person. Um, but I just, I'm reading these articles and instead of feeling encouraged, I find myself feeling um, dis, like I lack power because there's so many problems in the world. Uh, I want to feel encouraged. That's why I have these conversations. So I can, I and others can feel like we can make something we can make a positive change in the world. Sometimes, because of my guilty conscience, and I think a lot of conservationists are like this, where they're guilty and we just feel guilty for everything. So sometimes when I'm sitting here at my computer just reading article after article about how the bird names need to change because they're named after um, slaveholders and really horrible, oppressive people, how uh, climate change is hurting the most, poorest communities and environmental justice issues are rampant. I just feel such a weight on my shoulders and it makes me want to, um, um, I just want to help change these inequities and I can't do all of it. No one person can do it all. We can't. So, this, how I feel right now, is how I felt probably the past five, ten years. We're just like, I just want to cry all the time. And that is so unempowering. Like, I cannot make positive change for our planet if I just cry. <laughs> and sometimes it feels good. And so, thank you for listening right now. But I feel like this year has been a growing year where I overcame some hardships and I overcame my mistakes and I apologize for my mistakes and I made them but I changed and I listened and I grew and I hope you did too um because this this has been the, the strongest I've ever been in order to help make a positive change in the world you have to take care of yourself you have to know your value and your worth and you have to recognize that even if you f up a lot you can you can keep pushing through you can i will just say one more time as we're talking about all this stuff go to conservationtrauma.com and submit your name and your story if you have had some type of experience where you felt abused, you felt manipulated, you felt exploited, and you're dealing with the consequences of watching a suffering world and decreasing habitats and species on our planet. It's not good to suffer alone. And we are here for you. And um, not in like a, this was what I was afraid of, like a prideful way of like, I'm just going to not listen to anyone and I'm just going to keep doing what I do and not make any changes because I have done no wrong. I, I, uh, I don't want to have that attitude. And I don't mean to get super political here, but I don't that want to act like Trump. Like, I don't want to act like I am so arrogant that nothing ever phases me or... I am not affected by anything and I'm always right and never wrong. No. And I know that's not my heart. And But what I have come to understand is that I do have good ideas and I have a good soul that wants to give back and make positive changes. And we can do these things. We can. And when other people attack you or disagree with you even, um, you can take it into consideration and you can say like, oh, I might've messed up there. I will work on that. I will take, I will change this area here. But I let it destroy me sometimes where I wouldn't do anything and I'm not letting it destroy me anymore. I'm still going to press on with the goal of raising funds for conservation because I know that my organization can help solve some of these inadequacies in the world 
that definitely need to be dealt with. So please um, stick with me. If I apologize or if I mess up, we will. I'll ask for your forgiveness, and we will get through it. Um, no one is perfect. No one is perfect. So that's what I wanted to say about the panel. Again, I'm not going to go into details, but it really, it really wrecked me for a few months. I was, I was out. Um, it was all I could think about. And I don't want to go back there, but I, I do want to say this as a year-end reflection. Of, like, oh, I have messed up. So uh, a few more updates um, for my year-end review. You know, May through June was just kind of refiguring out. Basically, the panel brought out a lot of things that I had never thought about. Um, and so I spent quite a few months below the surface a little bit and just rethinking how I wanted to approach Nova Conservation and other conservationists. And um, that's when I ended up deciding to do the podcast so we can have just a clearer dialogue one-on-one. I like this format a lot better and I will continue on with it. Um, That's also when I, you know, I was already leaning towards like doing a review database. We tried to get that going in April may um that was that was a very difficult project and for a lot of different reasons but namely it's just was so expensive like cost after cost after cost kept creeping up and i was like i don't know what i'm doing why i'm doing this because i'm losing money so much and the best of intentions you just can't pull it out if you don't have the funds to do these things like it just the world needs money it takes money and it's sad but true so in order to do all the things I want to do I need to get paid and that's where I eventually settled on is uh I'm I'm going back to my love my first love of organizing trips going out in nature experiencing the things I want to experience and I know other people want to experience with me So we are intentionally trying to target audiences that have a bit more disposable income who want to travel and live like a biologist for a little bit and want to really give back to these ethical trips. So the marketing is changing. The um, focus is changing. I have Nova Conservation um, plans to make it a nonprofit that helps early career conservationists, especially those from underserved and marginalized groups, uh, break into the conservation industry because we need all voices. And then I also um, have plans to turn Nova Conservation into a an LLC. So I'm going to do both, um, probably. <laughs> Time will tell. I feel like I change every day, but that's the plan. And um, what else? But yeah, the trips are just going to be geared towards people who, people who can't afford to pay for them because we're, I know me and so many like me are sick of not making money and not getting paid. You are worthwhile. Money is not bad. Um, I have to hear that and say that a lot because I think of money and I'm like, oh, I just want to give it away, give it away right away. Like the Red Hot Chili Pepper song. But it is, it is important to survive and have a living and to then take money and divert it and the flow from capitalism. So think about it this way. Capitalism is so, like people are buying stuff all the time. There's so much money out there. So the least we could do is try to figure out how to harness that money flow and give it back to people who are conservationists, who are doing ethical work, who are doing the environmental justice work, instead of going to the pockets of Jeff Bezos or whoever, whatever, name your billionaire, right? So there's, there's a, there's like kind of a oomph behind it, because I want to make money, not because I want to be rich or need money, even, I need to give it back to people who have been suffering. And that is my conservation friends and my conservation community. And I think we can redistribute the wealth a little bit if we work together. Um, So please, yes, please, if this rings a bell, first of all, you can do a few things. Please reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you because 
I sometimes focus on the negative comments or the negative things that have happened in the past and I'm just like, oh no, and I dwell on that. But every little comment that says, thank you, this is important, or an email or um, a review on like a podcast or even just a like on social media, it makes a difference. And I'm like, okay, this keeps this keeps you going when you're not getting paid, right? Also, if you're willing and able to invest in any amount of money monthly, we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash novaconservation. Check that out. I'm tweaking it. I'm changing it, but that's a good place to um, help pay for some of these fees. I'm thinking of doing kind of a fundraiser to help raise fees again for like the review website because I do want to go back to it. I don't know when that's going to happen, if it's going to be under the nonprofit. It's probably going to have to be under the nonprofit but like a GoFundMe campaign or something to help raise the funds needed to dive back into web development for a really good structured review website. Uh, time will tell again with that. But yet in order to keep us going, I just have to make money through a business in order to keep the other things going. So that involves the travel and that is where the ecotourism part comes in in the marketing, which if you're a marketer, God bless you, because it takes a lot of time and energy and work. Um, I wanted to end this episode too by just thanking everyone who has helped me personally. Um, I started Nova Conservation on my own, and I've gotten so many amazing volunteers and people who support me and who are willing to write blogs and work on social media content and to share links and to connect me with people and um, make video editing tweaks and work on this podcast doing tweaking and things like that. And we're all just a bunch of volunteers trying to piece this all together. But Nova Conservation is my personal dream, so I appreciate anyone who wants to jump on board with this vision. Specifically, and in no particular order, Stephen Hernandez, who now works at TikTok, Emily Baxley, who's written some blogs and is a good friend of mine, Jerrica Madden, who was at um, the local university here, who's written some blogs. Hannah Lamb, she's now working with the Fish and Wildlife Service. Good for you, Hannah. Emily Davis, uh, she did her grad project with us and was interviewed for the podcast. Carly Miller, who's written amazing blogs. And I hope to talk to you soon, Carly. We need to connect. <laughs> Mario Shimbov, who's over in the UK and is doing an awesome internship program right now with the... Oh, I'm going to mess it up. Something environmental and wildlife protection, and it's really cool. Um, Kelsey Bernard, who's now out in California with the, working with the Cougar Conservancy. Natasha Bagalata, who is up in Min- Minnesota, and she's with the National Loon Center. And Galia Abel, who is um, now a PhD student doing shark tagging across the pond there in the UK as well. We've had a few... Uh, interns who've gotten college credit who have helped us out as well, specifically Morgan Leake. She has done a lot of research helping us try to figure out what it takes to be a nonprofit in the state of Tennessee. Haley Stanley was my very first intern, and she was also an actress on our one of our videos. Claire Mullins, who helped do a lot of research with the review database. Gaspar Hernandez, who's a communications intern who helped launch our podcast and start that up. Vivian Schlobritz, another communications intern who used tons of ideas to um, begin our podcast as well. And then we have two current interns for spring of 2022, Joanna Kasabowski and Timothy McCurry. And I'm really excited to work with both of them. Joanna's already been editing a bunch of these podcasts. So you've probably already heard some work done by Joanna. She's like on top of things and is already like halfway through the internship and the semester hasn't started yet. So I um, I wanted to be upfront because transparency is key and acknowledge that I do have interns who are getting college credit um, because no one is paid, myself included. They are not paid. And I understand the hypocrisy with that statement, <sighs> but this is, this is what we can do. And I um, wish that one day I'll be able to pay more people. Um, and I just keep trucking. We'll just keep trucking. I'm so glad they're getting credit for those efforts. And it, it, I'm, I think this is a good way of balancing. If you don't get paid for the work you're doing, at least get credit. 
at least get credit. And that goes to all conservation work. Um, not all, even not even just conservation, but any work. Please um, keep working hard, but don't undervalue yourself. Don't undersell yourself. And I am trying to do the same. And I think once, you know, I think we'll figure this out all together one day. And the world will be perfect and no one will have any more problems, right? <laughs> all right, guys, have a great end of your year. And I will see you in 2022 with our first episode of the year will be with Rose Santana. I loved her interview. I can't wait to share it with you. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. And remember, ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet.